If you have your Bible, I want you to meet me, use it, open it, meet me in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, as we continue to pick up in our study through the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 19 this morning during our time together. And as you make your way there, I want to, I want to begin with a story. Brian Loritz, a pastor that I like to listen to and read, uh, he recommended one time that we should read this book by Stephen Ambrose on the Transcontinental Railroad. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the history of the Transcontinental Railroad, but it was an amazing feat. In fact, it was one of the last feats from, according to this book, I picked it up and I started it a couple days ago, and uh, it's one of the last actual feats that we've had as a man-made creation. Uh, so in other words, it was a lot of labor and intensive work to get the Transcontinental Railroad built. Now we have all this wonderful technology, right? But they didn't have that then, and so they had to do it with physical labor. There was a man that was a part of the West Coast Railroad build, so building from the west to the east, and uh, his name was Collis Huntington. Now you probably have never heard of Collis Huntington, and that's okay. He was a railroad magnate. So think of, think of Collis Huntington like the Michael Jordan of the NBA. Like in the railroad world, people know about this guy. Collis Huntington, he, uh, he found out he was invited to a ceremony. And the ceremony that he was invited to was they were going to celebrate the first spike of the transcontinental railroad from the west coast as they began to move their way east. I call this the good idea ferry. Somebody got bit by the good idea and like, hey, let's celebrate the first spike. Collis Huntington declined. He said, I am not going to your ceremony. When asked why, he said, it's very simple. He said, because when I look at that first stake and I look at where that first stake is actually taking us to, he says, what I see is I see mountains. I see wilderness. I see a lot of work in the process before this thing is even completed. And then he said, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure we can do it. I think we might fail. And he said, and if we fail, I want as few people to know about it as possible. He said, there's nothing to celebrate when you knock in the first spike. He says, but the celebration will come when we knock in the last. You see, that's when it really matters. Anybody can start well, but finishing well, well, that's a different game altogether, isn't it? In fact, in uh, 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed and they celebrated by driving in the last spike, which was a golden spike, to celebrate this accomplishment. I think Collis Huntington teaches us all as Christians a very valuable lesson about the Christian life. You see, it's easy to start well, but it's not so easy to finish well, is it? When Jesus talks about the parable of the stewards, he doesn't say, hey, well start, good and almost faithful servant. What does he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. In Hebrews 3, chapter 7 through, or even Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 19, the author of Hebrews is going to teach us how to persevere in the faith. If you take nothing else from my sermon today, take this. The Christian life is a fight of perseverance to the end. It's not about starting well, it's about ending well. But this is typically what happens in our Christian life. In fact, I heard it this week in our men's equip. 
meeting, one of our men's equipped men, he talked to me. And by the way, I asked permission. I called him this week and said, can I have permission to use that story? And he said, yes. So if you ever be like, oh, he's talking about us, I will always get your permission before I do it. Got it? That's a, that's a covenant we will make together as one of your preachers here. So I called him and I said, can I use that story? And he said, yeah. And this is what he said. He said, when he became a Christian, the moment that he put his faith in Jesus, the people that were discipling and mentoring him said, listen, now that you put your faith in Christ, you're probably going to lose the next four baseball games. In other words, that trial is going to be a part of your life. And what they were ultimately telling this, this new believer, they're saying, fight for the faith. But here's our problem as Christians. We have a false belief about the Christian life. Many of us believe that once we meet Jesus or Jesus meets us and we put our faith in Jesus, that it's all going to be rainbows, unicorns, and dogs, not kittens because kittens are demonic. And if you want to know why I say that, I will give you the story of the one cat we have ever owned for approximately six months. In fact, when I put my jacket, this is not in my notes, and I know I get bad when I get off my notes, but um, like I put this jacket on and I found Figaro's claw marks still in my jacket. But we think as Christians, we think to ourselves that the Christian life is going to be all good. Meet Jesus. Life is going to be no problems. Worry free. Fill in the blank. But the reality is that the Christian life, while it does fill with hope and confidence and it gives us a, 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 a framework for living out and flourishing in God's created order, it is also filled with struggles, is it not? You all know this, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, whether it's been one second or a hundred years, you know that the Christian life is a struggle. And typically what happens amongst Christians, because we have this false belief that the Christian life is supposed to be all rainbows and, and, and puppy dogs, that once trials and tribulations happen, what typically happens to our faith? Well, we want to begin to shake. Our faith begins to wobble. We begin to ask unbelieving questions like, God, do you really care about me? God, do you love me? God, are you even there? Do you see what I'm going through? And we're tempted in our moments of our trials and our tribulations, we're tempted to walk away. The author of Hebrews says, no, Christian brothers and sisters, fight to persevere in the faith, even when trials come your way. The audience here is not unaccustomed to trials and tribulations. In fact, that's one of the main reasons that the author of Hebrews is writing this letter. They are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And it's in this persecution, it's in this trial that they're going, um, maybe we should go back to Judaism because it was a little easier on our lives. And the author of Hebrews says, no, persevere. Fight the good fight of faith until the end. Fight through the tribulation, Focusing and keeping your eye on Jesus and what he's going to accomplish in the future. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk very quickly through this text. Because what I want to show you is I want to show you an example of who not to be. So we don't want to be like in verses 7 through 11. We don't want to be like these people. But in verses 12 through 19, we're going to get the strategy or the way that we can fight for the faith. So here's what you got to understand is you're getting... Anybody like bluebell ice cream? You're getting like a triple scoop of bluebell ice cream today. And what I mean by that is, number one, the author here is going to start with a text from the Old Testament, Psalm 95. And then he's going to preach it in Psalm in, in, uh, 12 through 19. And I'm going to preach that to you. So you're getting like three sermons all wrapped into one. Doesn't that taste good like bluebell? Like three scoops of bluebell. 
So first thing we have here is we have a negative example. He says, don't be like these guys. Now look at me, if you will, real quick at verses 7 through 11. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he begins to quote verbatim Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. He says this, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. So what is the author showing us here? Well, first off, I want to show you two things about this example. Number one, notice how he begins. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, I I love this because this is a good reminder to us as Christians. We believe as Christians that. Men, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these very words. Which means they have no error and they are completely authoritative for us. And so the author's like, I'm not even going to give you the, the writer of Psalm 95. He said, I'm going to give you the divine offer and that is the Holy Spirit. He has written these words for you and I'm going to take the words that God has written and I'm going to apply them to the trials and the tribulations of your life. But notice how also he says it. He says, the Holy Spirit says, and that's in a present tense. This is what I believe very clearly this morning. Anytime that you hear the word of God rightly handled and preached, anytime you read the Bible, God himself is speaking to you. And he is going to speak into your life. This is why Bible reading is so important for the Christian life. This is why sitting under good sermons is so important for the Christian life because God uses his word to speak to his people. And today, I believe that God is going to speak to two groups of people in this room. Number one, he's going to encourage some of you. Some of you right now are struggling with a trial or a tribulation in the Christian life. Some of you maybe walked in here today and said, Jeremy, I'm on the I'm on the verge of getting rid of my faith because of what I'm dealing with, what I'm going through. And I'm questioning God's goodness. I'm questioning God's love. I'm questioning God's faithfulness. I'm not even sure that I still want to be a Christian anymore because of what I'm experiencing. I want you to know today, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you and encourage you to fight and persevere. But number two, some of you in here, you're going to realize that you actually don't believe in Jesus. Because like these Israelites here, their, their, their reaction is one of unbelief, which leads to disobedience. And so I'm asking God in my prayer time this week, as I've prepare, been preparing this sermon, I'm asking God that some of you, God will bring to saving faith in his son, Jesus. And then from that moment on, you will begin to persevere. So the key to unlocking the interpretation from verses 7 to 19 is in fact found in verse 19. Look with, really quick with me at this verse. 19. He's going to get there, I promise you. Listen, we have a new computer, and so there it is. Thank you. This is the key to unlocking the interpretation of the verse of these verses. So we see that they were unable. This day is going to be the Israelites that we're going to talk about here in a moment. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. Here's what you need to know. When you face a trial or a tribulation, if you are a unbeliever, you have unbelief, you're going to respond with disobedience and rebellion, just like the Israelites in Psalm 95. But if you are a true believer, you will respond with perseverance. And that doesn't mean it's going to make it easier. That doesn't mean that that life's not going to be just all of a sudden magically better. That doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle, but it means that God is going to hold on to you and persevere you to the end. 
And so you have to understand those two differences as you come to this text. So look at first ni- uh, Psalm 95 that the author highlights for us in verses 7 through 11. He, he uses Psalm 95 and he's talking specifically about an event in Israel's history, the Old Testament history. Now let me kind of give you a little brief summary of the event that took place in Numbers 14. So first off, you need to know that Israel was God's chosen people. Israel didn't do anything. They were probably insignificant on the scene, really, from the very beginning. But God, out of his grace and his mercy, he called them to himself as his people. The same way that God calls you to himself through Jesus as his people. And so he brings Israel in as his people. And he says, through Israel, I'm going to usher in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes out of Israel's history. You don't believe me? Go read Matthew chapter 1. You know those genealogies that are in there that we all just skip over? That's where you'll see Jesus' genealogy throughout Israel. All right? And so Jesus is brought to the world through the Israelite people to save the world, every single person, man, woman, and child, from their sin and give them a new life in himself. Now, Israel had some bad history, though. At one point in Israel's history, they were under Egyptian slavery. They were captives in Egypt. In fact, they had gotten so big that Pharaoh was like, oh my goodness, they're going to realize how big they are and they're going to take us over, so let's enslave them. It's kind of like, and this is like probably a really bad analogy, but this is the way that I thought through it. It's kind of like we are here at Center Church. You do realize, adults, right, that we are outnumbered children to adults. Like, by God's grace, he has brought a lot of children and he's bringing more adults, but right now he's bringing more children to adults. And I think, honestly, every time I come in here and I pray, God, don't let them realize the truth. That they outnumber us. And like if they wanted to stage a coup, they could. Right? But they wouldn't do that, right? Because they're raised in Christian families. And they want to honor authority over them. You see how I did that? You're welcome, parents. You can say thank you to me after the service. But that's how they felt. And so they were enslaved to Egypt. But God, out of his goodness and grace, he heard the cries of his people. And he sent a deliverer, Moses, to save them from their captivity. So Moses comes in, and God uses Moses to do a lot of cool stuff. He, he brings plagues in. Uh, he parts the Red Sea. And in all that, God uses Moses to save his people from Egyptian slavery and captivity. And then the, the, the Israelites are moving across the wilderness because God promised them that he's going to put them into a promised land. A promised land that is filled with milk and honey and a place that's flourishing and that they're going to live and do well at. But then we come to Psalm 95's text, and what happens is the, um, the Israelites, they come to the side of the promised land, and they're getting ready to enter. They've seen God do these amazing works. He's always been working with them and working through Moses, and they get to the promised land. And so Moses says, I'm going to send 12 spies into the promised land to check it out. Well, the 12 spies come back, and 10 of them, 10 of them say, Mm-mm, we can't go there. They are big. They are built up. They are, we're not going to win. Like if we go in there, we're going to lose. And so they begin to stir the people up with this idea that the God who saved us from Egyptian slavery, he's not good enough to save us from these people that we're going to go in there and take the promised land over from. It would be kind of like this. And you have to forgive me because this was already in my notes prior to yesterday's football games. And so like, I'm, I'm just telling you, like there's some, sanct- there's some sanctification taking place in this heart from the Aggie loss yesterday. Um, And so this is going to have to now be theoretical. This would be kind of like, in theory, this would be like the Red Raiders playing A&M. And they go and they're like, hey, we're going to scout out. (laughs) 
Kyle just popped into the front of the door right there, and I said that. The Red Raiders going to A&M, and they're like scouting it out, and they're like, oh my goodness. They run back to Lubbock, and they're like, they're big. Their stadium is big. Their fan base, we're going to lose. So like, we're not even going in. But then there's two guys named Joshua and Caleb. They came back and were like, no, God promised us this land. He has given it into our hands. We're going to go in there. The Lord is going to fight our battles, and we're going to win this thing. So, again, this is what it would be like. It was like that year when Johnny Manziel first came to Texas A&M University, and we went into the Alabama big house, and we won. That's what Joshua and Caleb are thinking. They're like, Jesus is going to lead us in here, and we're going to win this thing. Who did the people listen to? They listened to the ten. And their hearts began to stir in rebellion against God. They began to disobey God. They began to go, wait a minute, we're not going to follow Moses anymore. We don't believe that the God that saved us from Egyptian slavery can save us in the in this pursuit of the promised land. So what we're going to do is we're going to overthrow Moses. We're going to insert our own leaders and they're going to take us back to Egypt. Think of the craziness of that. They've seen God part seas. They have seen God give them manna. They have seen God bring them quail when they started complaining about not having enough meat. So he's like, let's let some meat fall from the sky. They had seen God do amazing things. He, he poured water out of a rock for his people. And so they get to there and they're like, well, he's not that good. We don't believe that he can take us in there. So let's go back to slavery. Let's go back and rebel against this God who has saved us. And let's go do whatever we want. That's the unbelief that leads to disobedience. And that's the unbelief that we see here. Look at it in verse Psalm 95, what he says. Today, if you hear his voice, go into the promised land. Don't harden your hearts like they did in the rebellion when they tested him in the wilderness. Where your fathers put to the test and saw my works for 40 years. And I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They go astray because they don't believe. And in their unbelief, they rebel and disobey against me because they have not known my ways, he says at the end of verse 10. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews, why does he bring that to our attention? He says this, don't be like those guys. Fight to persevere. Let me give it to you again one this way. Unbelief leads to disobedience. True belief in Jesus leads to perseverance. He's saying, don't go down that road. Don't leave Jesus to go back towards Egypt. Stay with Jesus and persevere through it all. So, how do we do this? How do we persevere as Christians? When trials and tribulations come our way, how do we get through it? Well, the author of Hebrews, in all of God's grace, gave you three ways to get through trials and tribulations. Way number one, are you ready? It's found in verses 13 and 14. And this is way number one. I have it on the this, this slide for you. On verse 12. Uh, verse 12. There we go. Number one, we commit to a local church. The first way that we persevere is we commit to a local church. Look what it says here in verse 12 through 13. Notice the family language as well. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, he says, every day, as long as it is called today. 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is, what is he showing his people here? He says, brothers and sisters, as trials and tribulations come your way, lean in to each other. The local body helps you persevere in the Christian life. Because there's a local body that comes together and says, we want you to run the race and finish well. We want to help you in that. Kind of notice the beginning here. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Let's be honest here. We all have our moments of unbelief, do we not? Well, did, that, that's like the, that's the epitome of the Garden of Eden. Satan comes to Eve. Did God really say? She, he starts to poke at her unbelief. No, what God has is he's holding out. He doesn't have the best for you. He doesn't want you to eat because he doesn't want you to become your own little God. So Adam and Eve, they eat. And that's the same thing that is, we're tempted to do today. We're tempted to go, did God really say? And our unbelief begins to be fostered in them. Did, did God really say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Did God really say that I shouldn't have sex outside of marriage? Did God really say that I'm supposed to tithe? Did God really say that I'm supposed to serve him, to love my neighbor as myself? Does he really mean that? Did God really say that I'm supposed to pray for the government that God has placed above me, even though I categorically reject him ideologically? The answer is, yeah, it's exactly what God's word says. And so deep within us, there's a moment where our unbelief stirred. And this is where the church comes alongside you and helps you through your unbelief. Excuse me. That was not good. Uh, Helps you through your unbelief to lead you towards future belief in him. To help correct the unbelief that is in your life, that is stirring, that is going to try to cause you to fall away from the living God. And it is the church that comes along inside and says, let me help you in your unbelief and let me help you correct it towards a right belief in what God says about himself through his word. But look how we do it. Because I'm going to tell you, this is where it gets kind of tough. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day. The idea here is that the local church, the body of believers, comes around you and is designed to encourage you also through exhortation. That means that sometimes people are going to get in your business. That they might have to do a little confronting with love. And listen, in our American church, consumer Christianity, we don't like accountability. Who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to tell me where my unbelief is leading me? You know what? Because you say that to me, I'm taking my ball and I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to go to a church that won't tell me what's wrong with me and tell me how to get better and help me tell me how the gospel impacts this part of my marriage or my life or my spouse or my children or my work or my job or my money. Or I don't want that. So I'm going to go somewhere where they don't give it to me. That's not how you persevere. That's how you go back to Egypt. Now, we're not to do this mean, right? We don't exhort one another in a mean way. The reason that we exhort, encourage one another in this way, as we say, here's where I see something, God, that something that is not good in your life. The reason that we do that is so that when, when we say, not I want to do this to be mean, because I love you and I want you to persevere to the end. That's my reasoning for confronting and exhorting you today. It's so that you will make it and hear those words that we should all covet to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. But you know what that requires from a church? You ready? That requires us to be transparent. 
That means that we have, to, we have to be able to step up and say, listen, this is where I'm struggling right now in my life. Church, this is where I'm, I'm struggling in my marriage, or I'm struggling with a wayward child, or a rebellious child, or I'm, I'm struggling at my job, or I'm struggling with a health issue, or I'm struggling with this. Like, here's where I'm struggling. And we have to be willing to be transparent enough to say, I need your help. I need you to exhort me in this and help me through this. And guess what? That's what the church is designed to do. We're designed to carry each other's burdens. But we can't carry your burdens if we don't know what they are. You know what we all like to do though, right? Because we have, again, bought into a very false reality of the church. We think that everybody when they come in here has to have their church game on. Believe that, yeah, well, my marriage might be struggling, but hmm, let's pretend we got it all together for this one hour on Sunday, okay? Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not easy. We know that. We understand that sin creeps in even in our own walk with Jesus. And it's the church's job to help you make it and persevere to the end. So you have to be willing to be transparent. But number two, that means we have to have a culture of humility. So transparency and humility. We have to be humble. Look what he says at the very end of verse 13. I I love this. He says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You realize sin is deceitful, right? Sin deceives you. And so sometimes people have to speak truth into our lives in such a way that we see our own sin. Because sometimes we have bought into the deceitfulness of sin. We justify it or we become more religious or whatever the case may be. And so when we buy into it, we don't think we have any. And therefore somebody's got to call it out. We have to be humble when people call it out. Let me give you a, let me give you a personal testimony of this. Um, many years ago, we had a young lady who came to our house who was from Mormon, Mormonism. And, uh, and she believed in the, in the Mormon teachings, which don't teach the gospel the way that the Bible teaches the gospel. And so she sat down in our house in California, and we were sitting there visiting with her. And I was halfway through my Master of Divinity, and I was about as arrogant and smug as an MDiv student. God has really humbled me since that day. And I whooped every single one of her arguments. I walked out of that room going, she didn't hold a candle to my arguments. She brought everything, and I just completely poked holes in everything with Scripture. Like, she didn't stand a chance. I was a winner that day in my own eyes. You're going to bring those arguments to me? I will knock them down. Katie takes her back to her sister's house. And on the way, I didn't know this at the time, but on the way she had called me a Bible-bashing Baptist. Ooh, that one hurt. And Katie said, is, he'd, he'd treat you like... He'd, she said, I'm sorry the way he treated you. He was only telling you that because he truly loves you and he wants you to see you come to faith in Jesus. Katie actually did better witnessing to that woman than I did. Katie comes into the house and there is this smug man sitting there in the living room. And I'm like, mm-hmm, she's going to tell me how good I am. She's going to be like, Jeremy, you were the man when it comes to theology. Like, you were just so wonderful. She started the conversation this way. I need to tell you something. And I'm like, yeah, you do. She said, you're not going to like it. I said, what? 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 What, what do you mean I'm not going to like this? Did you not just see what I did in there? She said, you, you show no grace. You show no compassion and you show no love to her as you try to share the gospel with her. 
She said, because your arrogance got in the way of the aroma of Jesus. Now, two reactions Jeremy could have. (laughs) You're crazy. I know everything. I did it the right way. I'm an evangelism master. I'm teaching the class on Sunday. Or, humility. I need to look into my heart. Because obviously I'm not seeing the arrogance that's starting to spew out as I'm sharing the gospel with others. And thankfully, by God's grace, I responded with humility. And so now, I don't do that anymore when I'm sharing the gospel. Instead, I try to respond how Jesus would respond, with grace and love that is founded on the gospel. So let me ask you a question. What if somebody came to you today and said, I see this sin in your life that is deceiving you. How would you respond? With humility? So that you can persevere in the faith? Or with pride and say, leave me alone, you don't know what you're talking about. We commit ourselves to the local church so that we can persevere. So that they can show us the sin in our lives to help us, not to make fun of us, not to belittle us, but to push us to the reward that we have in Christ. And it also requires transparency. Number two, we commit ourselves to Jesus. We commit ourselves to remember what Christ has done for us. When we go through trials and tribulations, we need to be reminded of our exodus in Jesus. What I mean by that is that you and I, we were all slaves to sin. We were all in bondage to our sinfulness. We were by nature children of wrath. And it is only through Jesus that we can walk into a new life with him. It is only through Jesus that we exit the slavery of our sin and begin to follow the Savior. And the reality is when trials and tribulations come your way, you need to be reminded of what Jesus has done for you. You need to remember that Jesus saved me, that Jesus took my sin on that cross, that Jesus rose again to prove he has defeated my sin and that I have placed my faith in him. And so when the trials and the tribulations come because of my faith in Jesus, I know he will help me persevere. I call these faith markers in our lives. But there's moments where faith markers come. The moment of salvation is a faith marker. The the moment of your baptism is a faith marker. The moment that, that God does something amazing in your life, that's a faith marker. And we need to go back and remember the faith markers. What they, what the Israelites should have done is they should have gone back and said, do you remember when Jesus, or when God through Moses turned the, the Nile River into blood? Let's kind of focus on that for a minute as we get ready to go into the promised land. Or, or maybe we need to remember, do you remember when, the, when, the, when the Pharaoh's army was coming after us and God blocked them off and then he parted the Red Sea and we walked through on dry land and he saved us? Let's remember that work that God has done. And if God can do that work in our past, then don't you think God can work in our present? That's when you should have shook your head yes. So when we go through trials and tribulations... We need to remember what God had already done and say, God, you're the one who saved me. You're also the one who can help me persevere in these moments. Look, look at how the, how the author of Hebrews really says we need to dig our roots deep in Jesus when trials and tribulations come our way. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold that idea, hold us to grasp onto it with every fiber of your being, our original confidence, firm to the end. Kyle likes to say this in our basis class, and I think it really applies here. He says, we like to think of Jesus as the one who saves us and the one who's going to give us new life. But no, Jesus is not just the one who saves us. He's also the one who is continuing to sustain and save us now in the present as we get ready to launch into that new life in Jesus. 
to the reward that is coming our way at the end. And so the reality is, as a Christian, you need to grow deep roots in the gospel. What we want to prevent is we want to prevent you from being like the seed that fell on the thorny, the rocky soil that sprouted up, but had no roots. And when the sun came and scorched it, it just completely withered away. And it withered away because it had no deep roots in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we want to see the roots here at Center Church. We want to see those gospel roots begin to dig deep into the gospel soil so that when trials and tribulations come your way, you are able to sustain and persevere. But listen, if you're here today and you're like, I don't have any roots in Jesus. I've got good news for you this morning. Jesus is ready to give you those roots today. The same Jesus who saved us from our, sla- our, sin, uh, our slavery and captivity to sin is the same Jesus who can do that into your life today. And he will change your life. Yes, you are going to face trials and tribulations, but here's what I will tell you. If you put your faith in Jesus, he will help you persevere to the end. I believe that with all my heart. If I didn't, I wouldn't be preaching and I wouldn't be standing here before you. Come to know Christ today. Find the hope, the confidence, and the rest in the gospel and persevere to the end. Number, number three and last, third way we see this, is number, well, not only do we commit to a local church, not only do we commit to remember what Christ has done, but number three, we, we commit to think about what Christ is going to do. We think about the future. Look, look at what he says in, in verses 15 through 19. Through a series of questions in verses 16 and 18. He says, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Well, obviously they were the ones that were unbelievers that had rebelled against God when he told them to go into the promised land. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Yes, they saw what God did in Egypt. They got to the edge of the promised land and they rebelled and said, we want to go back to Egypt because we don't believe in God's goodness, love and mercy. Verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Of course, it was that same generation. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So what you got to understand is when they, when they rebelled against God and not going to the promised land, he made them go wander in the wilderness for 40 years until every single one of those rebels died. And then once they died, then he moved them into the promised land. So they ultimately did not enter into God's rest, which is signified in the symbol of the promised land because of their rebellion and their unbelief. And listen, that is the fate for all those who do not put their trust and faith in Jesus. Jesus does not want that for you. We know he doesn't want that for you because he died for you on the cross. He took your sin and he offers you this morning, offers himself to you this morning as a free gift to receive and begin to move forward in the newness that he has given you, newness of life that he has given you. But then look what he says in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Here's what we have to be reminded of. Trials and tribulations are temporary. Trials and tribulations are temporary. As Christians, when we go through trials and tribulations, we need to not only look to the past of what Jesus has done, but we also need to look to what Jesus is going to do. Let me give you a little hint at the end. Are you ready? What we look towards. Jesus wins it all. He's already victorious, but he's going to put it all back together again. You know what that means for us as believers? Number one, that when Jesus puts it all back together again, we are going to be in his presence forever. And when he rebuilds the new heavens and the new earth for us to live on once again one day, we are going to live with no sin. Can you imagine what's going to be? I can't even fathom what it's going to be like to wake up and not have to worry about sin struggles anymore. Are you? Like, I am pumped for that day. 
There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more mourning. There's going to be no more pain. In fact, God himself is going to wipe away every tear of, from your face. That's what the future holds. That's what eternity holds. And so let me ask you a question. When you think with an eternal perspective, doesn't that put your trials and tribulations into a proper context? In other words, what I mean by that is that trials and tribulations that we deal with for maybe 80 years is pale in comparison to what we have coming for all eternity. Think of it like this. How many of you like to work out? Nobody. But why do we do it? We do it for the reward. Nobody wants to get up early in the morning and go run three miles or do squats or do Pilates or do whatever workout makes you happy. And we wake up and we're like, man, I got to go do a workout. I got to put my body through this trial, through this tribulation for like 30 minutes to an hour. Like that's not going to be fun. But what ends up happening after you get done with the workout? You get jacked. That's exactly right. Listen, if I have a, if I have a young man still in on my sermon, all of you should still be in on my sermon right now. You get jacked. Man, when you get done, you're like, I've got all this energy. I feel good. My belt's a little bit smaller today. I'm going to rest and I'm going to sleep good tonight. And so what happens in a workout? Well, we put our body through about 30 to, 30 to 45 minutes of trial and tribulation because we know what it's going to do for the rest of our day, right? It's going to make us feel good. It's going to be a reward that comes with working out. But think at how much a grander level Jesus' reward is coming to us. So yeah, I can deal with trials and tribulations for 80 years. Because I'm not going to have to ever deal with them again for all the rest of all eternity. And that helps me do what? Persevere. That helps me persevere through the trials and tribulations of today. Because I know what Jesus has in store for me tomorrow. And for all eternity after that. So, commit to a local body. Commit to remembering what Jesus has done. And lastly, commit to remember what Jesus is about to do. And that will help you persevere through the trials and tribulations of this life. I want everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes for a moment. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're going through a trial right now, like a real deep life trial that's causing you to, to shake in your faith, that you're beginning to wobble, and you're beginning to question, like, I don't even know if Jesus is really worth this. I don't know if following Jesus is really worth this. Maybe you even came in, you're like, I'm just going to give church one more chance. One more chance before I, before I call it all in. And I go back to Egypt. Listen, I want you to be transparent right now with me. Because I want to pray for you. If you're going through a trial, I want you to just simply lift your hand in the air and look at me. And when I look at, back at you, you can put your hand down. Nobody's looking, everybody's head's down. But if you're going through a trial right now, Put your hand up right now. Let me see. I got one, two, three, four. Good. I see you. For all those that just stuck up their hand and for all those that didn't, I want you to know this. We are here for you. We love you. And we want to help you through whatever it is that you're going through right now. We want to shine the gospel bright for you. So that you will persevere to the end. That you will drive in that last spike of the Christian life. 
And I'm going to pray for every single one of you that raised your hand. But before I do, I have another group that I want to ask you to raise your hand. If you're here this morning and you're like, Jeremy, I'm an unbeliever that just lives a life of disobedience and my life is messed up and broken. And everything that you've talked about, it sounds good. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is opening my heart to believe and trust in this Jesus that you have talked about today. And I want to begin to live and persevere in this faith no matter what comes to mind. I want to have the same hope that you have of the eternal reward that Jesus is bringing to you. If that's you this morning, if, you, if you're saying, Jeremy, today I want to give my life to you. I want to put my faith in this Jesus. I want to go, I want to get, I want to be a part, this, I want this to be the day my Exodus story begins where Jesus saves me from my sin. Then simply raise your hand right now. Everybody's heads bow, every eyes closed. Raise your hand. Okay. I'm going to pray. And when I get done with my prayer, here's what I want you to do. If you're going through a trial or a tribulation, this week I want you to ask God, God, who are somebody from Center Church that I can go to with this to help me through it? Whether that's one of your pastors, one of your MC leaders, somebody in your men's equip or women's equip. Go to them and say, this is what I'm dealing with and I need you to help me persevere through it. That's what we're here for as a body of Christ. Father, I just thank you now for all those hands that were raised. In those questions. Lord, I, I see the trials and tribulations that people are going through right now. And Lord, some of them have indicated that with their hands raised. Father, I pray, I pray for them. I pray for every single one of them, Lord, that, that they would rest in you. That they would be reminded as they're going through these trials and tribulations that, that your presence and your power is with them. And that they have a church here at Center Church that loves them so much that they, we want to help them persevere through the end. We want them to be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But sometimes we all get to a position in our lives where we say we just need help. And we want to help them, not only as a church, as as a love one another passages of Scripture, but we want to love them using the gospel as our guide and our tool. Father, I pray that every single hand that was raised during their trials and tribulations, that they would be reminded and brought further deeper into the confidence that they have in Christ Jesus. To be reminded of what Christ has done. And that if Christ can do that for sinners like us, He can get us through any trials and tribulations that we're dealing with today. And lastly, Father, I pray that they would look to the future of what Jesus is going to do. That that would bring them the hope that they need to experience and walk through the trials that they're dealing with right now. Father, may You build us as a church that is filled with transparency and humility. Transparency and humility so that we can all end this thing together And hear those coveted words, well done, my good and faithful servants. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Here's what we're going to do. I want you, uh, we're going to come to a time of communion. We're going to do it corporately again today because I think this text lends itself to that. So if you are a follower of Jesus, in good standing with your church, if you are a believer who's given your life to Christ and has believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're in in good standing with your church, then I want you to come and, and, and grab the elements. This is grape juice and bread. And take it back to your seat as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Take a moment to examine yourself. Examine your heart. But this is only for believers. Not because if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus to ostracize you. We actually want you to come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So next time we join together at the communion tables, you will join with us as a brother and sister in Christ. So at this time, everybody stand. Come and grab the elements if you're a believer. And we will go through the communion steps together at this time, to be reminded of what Christ has done for us, just like we learned about in our text today.